Chapter 2 of Pathological Lying, Accusation, and Swindling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Pathological Lying, Accusation, and Swindling by William and Mary Healy. Chapter 2 Previous Studies. The subject of pathological lying was first definitely brought to the attention of the medical and legal professions by the studies of Delbruck. The aim of this work was to follow the development of a symptom, but little commented upon up to this time, a symptom, as he says, found in every healthy person in slight degree, but in some cases rising to pathological significance and perhaps dominating the entire picture of abnormal traits, thus becoming pathognomic. This symptom he at the outset calls lying. Through an elaborate and exhaustive investigation of the lies told by five patients over a period of years, he came to the conclusion that the form of falsifying in these cases deserves a new and separate name. It was not ordinary lying or delusion or false memory. These words expressed only part of the conception. Hence he coined the new term, pseudologia fantastica to cover the species of lying with which he was concerned. Later German writers have also adopted this terminology. To emphasize the method by which he arrived at this conclusion, and to gain at the same time some knowledge of the problems he dealt with, we may review in bare outline his case studies. The first patient presented by Delbruck was an Austrian maidservant, who in her wanderings through Austria and Switzerland had played at various times the roles of Romanian princess, Spaniard of royal lineage, a poor medical student, and rich friend of a bishop. Her lying revealed a mixture of imagination, boastfulness, deception, delusion, and dissimulation. She romanced wonderfully about her royal birth and wrote letters purporting to be from a cardinal to herself. She fled, disguised as a man, from an educational institution to Switzerland, where her sex was discovered. It appeared that she was subject to contrary sex feelings and thought of herself as a man. She was under the observation of Kraft Eben at one time. He considered it at least a case of paranoia. Others had determined the girl to be a psychopath who indulged in simulations and lies. Delbruck denominated it a case of direct lying with a tendency to fantasies, delusions, and dissimulations. Delbruck from this case argues that a mixture of lies and delusions is possible, comparing such a state with dreaming and with the hypnotic condition in which one follows the suggestion of the hypnotizer and is still aware of the fact. It was evident at times that this girl half believed her own stories then again that she had forgotten her former lies. In her, Delbruck considers perverted sex feeling and hysteria revealed a brain organization abnormal from birth. There was the instinctive tendency to lie. The second patient, an epileptic girl, had been many times imprisoned and also sent to the Charité for examination into her sanity before Delbruck saw her. Her peculiar method was to approach strangers, claiming to be a relative coming from another city to visit, 
if cordially received she would stay as long as her welcome lasted then depart taking with her any of their possessions her fancy chose many prominent physicians examined her and were unable to decide as to her responsibility judges and others said she was a willful deceiver a refined swindler delbrook looking deeper found that she was suffering from hysteria having hystero-epileptic seizures with following delirium or rather twilight states though her delinquencies seemed to show cunning and skill a careful investigation revealed the fact that this was merely aberrant generally her thieving was undertaken in feeble-minded fashion many times she stole things worthless to herself evidences of her pathological mentality were that she would give orders for groceries would buy children's clothes or send for a physician under an assumed name she might not go back for the groceries but after ordering them would say she would return with the carriage the characteristic fact throughout her career was that she wished to appear to be someone wealthier more influential than she was delbrook classifies her as high-grade feeble-minded suffering from convulsive attacks and peculiar states of consciousness with a morbid tendency to lying she possessed no power to realize the culpable nature of her acts when she was performing them his third patient as a boy appeared normal both mentally and physically in his youth he went through the gymnasium and then studied theology he spent money very freely on clothing and books but at this period neither stole nor lied after finishing his theological studies he preached in his home town and was regarded as a young man of great promise then came a change he began to write strange letters telling of some positions offered him he borrowed money freely from relatives and friends who were willing to give because they believed in his coming career when studied, it was concluded by Delbrook that this was a case of constitutional psychosis, hysteria, moral insanity, and psychopathy, all of these forms being interrelated. Outside of masturbation, begun in early childhood and indulged in excessively at times, no causal factors were discovered. He considered that this case offered a good illustration of the peculiar coexistence of real lies and delusions in the same individual. His fourth case was that of an artful, deceitful, arrogant, selfish boy, always clever in excuses, who had stolen from the age of twelve, often stolen things that he threw away. Though of Protestant family, he delighted to draw Catholic insignia and embroider religious characters. He finally entered the university, always lying and stealing. At the end of three months, he was taken home in debt, 2,000 marks. He later became a Catholic. Outside a normal expense, he had cost his father 28,000 marks. By the time he was studied, he had already taken opium for four years, having started because of neuralgia. There had been a severe operation on account of some trouble with the teeth. It was discovered that there was contrary sexual feeling in this case also. The patient had a great inclination for doing woman's handwork. Delbrook again considered the early appearance of character anomalies and perverted sex feeling to prove a deep-seated abnormality of nervous constitution. 
He diagnosed it as a case of constitutional psychosis, the extent of the abnormalities showing the individual to be irresponsible. His latest patient was an alcoholic adventurer, early life unknown, who had an idiotic sister. He had lived long in America and returned to Germany full of stories of his wonderful achievements overseas. The case does not concern us except to emphasize the influence of alcohol in the development of such cases. This outline is sufficient to show the justification of his conclusion, namely that just as in healthy people a mixing of lies and mistakes may occur, so the same combination may reach a pathological height and one can diagnose a mixture of lies with delusions or false memories. These studies focus our attention on the following points, which are valuable to emphasize for the purpose of this monograph. The complexity of details to be examined in the life of any one patient in whose delinquencies pathological lying is a factor, the variety of cases in which this factor may occur, hence the difficulties in the way of determining the extent to which the patient is responsible for his deeds and whether he belongs in a reformatory or an insane hospital. From the standpoint of society, Delbrook's work has great use, since it reveals so plainly the menace that these liars are to their families and to the community as a whole, their unscrupulousness in financial dealings, their tendencies to bring false accusations involving families and friends alike in useless expense and litigation. German studies on Pseudologia Fantastica since Delbruck's time have followed the line of amplification of his views and clarification of the subject by the addition of new types. Koppen attempted to differentiate sharply and to analyze more accurately the conception of the pathological lie. He found it impossible to make an absolute separation between pathological lies and normal lies. The lies of the mentally diseased are seldom pathological. They lie, but their lies do not differ from those of the mentally sound. We cannot call the results delusional lies. Among imbeciles, we find a peculiar disposition to lying, especially among those of criminal inclination. Their lies do not separate themselves either in content or in relation to the rest of their ideas from the lies of the mentally diseased. Here follows his positive contribution to the conception. The pathological lie is active in character. A whole sequence of experiences is fabricated, and the products of fancy brought forward with a certainty that is astonishing. The possibility that the untruth may be at any minute demolished does not abash the liar in the least. Remonstrances against the lies make no impression. On closer inspection, we find that the liar is no longer free. He has ceased to be master of his own lies. The lie has one power over him. It has the worth of real experience. In the final stage of the evolution of the pathological lie, it cannot be differentiated from delusion. Pathological lies have long been credited to hystericals. They are now known to arise in alcoholics, imbeciles, degenerates. All pathological liars have a purpose, that is, to decorate their own person, to tell something interesting, and an ego motive is always present. 
they all lie about something they wish to possess or be. Coppin offers three case studies. One, a man who had suffered from many epileptic seizures came from a family in which there was insanity. He gave himself many false titles, and from his childhood pathological lying had been a prominent symptom. As an example, when he married against his father's will, he at the wedding read a false dispatch, pretending to be congratulations from his family. Coppin suggests that this individual was incapable of meeting life as it really was, and he therefore wove a mass of fantasies. 2. A young man charged with grave falsifications. He had come from an epileptic family and himself had slight attacks in childhood. He bore various pathological stigmata. Coppin considered that the patient believed his own stories about his rather superior education and that in general his lies became delusions which influenced his actions. He diagnosed the case as psychotic, insane in a legal sense. 3. A young man, undoubtedly insane, brought forward his pathological lies with such force that Coppin was persuaded that the patient believed in them. Bernard Risch has seen many cases of delinquents with more or less marked psychopathic signs in which pathological lying was the focal point. He reports five cases at great length, in all of whom the inclination to fabricate stories, der Hang zum Fambulieren, is irresistible and apparently not to be repressed by efforts of the will. Risch's main points, built up from the study of his cases, are worthy of close consideration. 1. Mental processes similar to those forming the basis of the impulse of literary creation in normal people lie at the foundation of the morbid romances and fancies of those afflicted with pseudologia fantastica. The coercive impulse for self-expression with an accompanying feeling of desire and dissatisfaction plays a similar part in both. That the making up of tales is an end in itself for the abnormal swindler, just as it is for the normal author, seems clear to Risch. Two, the morbid impulse which forces Zumfabulering is bound up with the desire to play the role of the person depicted. Fiction and real life are not separated as in the mind of the normal author. 3. The bent of thought is egocentric. The morbid liar and swindler can think of nothing but himself. 4. There is a reduction of the powers of attention in these cases. Only upon supposition that this faculty is disturbed can we account for the discrepancies in the statements of patients. One has the impression that their memory for delinquencies is not clear. Careful investigation proves that they do not like to remember them, and this dislike has to be overcome. 5. There is a special weakness in judgment, which for general purposes is sound. The train of thought is logical, but in ethical discernment the lack appears. The pathological liar does not face openly the question of whether his lies can be seen through. Then follows a closer analysis of the qualities possessed by pathological liars. A. Their range of ideas is wide. B. Their range of interests is wider than would be expected from their grade of education. C. Their perceptions are better than the average. D. They are nimble-witted. 
their oral and written style is above normal in fluency e they exhibit faultiness in the development of conceptions and judgments their judgment is sharp and clear only as far as their own person does not come into consideration it is the lack of any self-criticism combined with an abnormal egocentric trend of thought that biases their judgments concerning themselves f psychic traumata arise perhaps through a striking reaction in the emotional realm towards external occurrences g nearly all of rish's cases were burdened with bad inheritance he maintains that above all these cases show instability and psychic excitability the entire symptom complex arises upon a basis of degeneracy essential similarities run through all of rish's cases it is perhaps valuable here to cite a couple of them his case one is that of a soldier who after being released from prison at twenty-three years had begun his military duty and in a short time attempted suicide he was then studied for insanity it was found that he gave long accounts of his experiences as a chauffeur rendering his story with fluent details about hair-breadth escapes and other adventures he also told at length of his love affair with a young girl these stories were discovered to be false from a to z he did not clearly remember them later the evolving of such fabrications was all along one of his chief characteristics examination showed no gross intellectual defect but there were certain psychopathic signs which had been displayed from early childhood he had little endurance and was unable to stand criticism emotions befitting his stories were correctly expressed by him there were no facial evidences of conflict or discomfort it was impossible to tell from his physiognomy that he was engaged in untruths mentally he was well oriented and his thoughts flowed in orderly sequence despite rather limited education he demonstrated very good style in his conversation and his letters the train of thought was expressed coherently and logically so well that one could speak of him as having literary ability physically he was quite normal investigation of antecedents showed that he was born of an exceedingly nervous mother more exact diagnosis not given and that he had a feeble-minded brother during his school career he was considered to have quite fair ability he learned no trade and after stopping school would leave a position upon the slightest provocation before he was twenty-three he had been legally punished many times for stealing and had spent all told over three years in prison once before he had attempted suicide after the thorough study of him at twenty-three he was placed in an asylum there he was occupied at basket weaving and was chiefly notable for keeping up the characteristics that were peculiar to him before he continually lied and indeed seemed to get his main pleasure out of telling fabulous stories to other patients case four was a man of thirty-one years a decorative painter by trade who presented himself at the state attorney's office and stated that in a fit of jealousy he had shot and killed a man taking up the case it was soon found that this was quite untrue and that the man was a chronic liar he seemed much astonished when he was told that the man he claimed to have killed was still alive 
Further study of this self-accuser showed that he had been punished by the law every year since he was 16. His offenses consisted of embezzling, theft, forgery, and swindling. In all, he had served about six and a half years. His lying was so much a part of his mental life that he seemed to be unable to discriminate between his real and his fancied crimes. He not only invented stories, but was much inclined to play some role created by his fancy. There seemed to be a method to his cheating and swindling, which added to his undoubted pleasure in lying. His peculiar career was much furthered by the possession of a fluent style and a good memory, through which his creations were built up in most plausible fashion. He proved to be willingly introspective and stated that his inclination to lie was a puzzle to him and that while he was engaged in prevarications, he believed in them. He always was the hero of his own stories. He further declared that inner unrest and love of wandering drove him forth even when he was living under orderly conditions. He considered that his feeling of restlessness was a weighty motive in the deeds for which he had been punished. At one time this man had simulated attacks of epilepsy and attempted in connection with these to swindle physicians and others. His schooling had been continued to the gymnasium, Untertertia. Then he had taken up his trade. His intelligence and memory were considered excellent. He had an insane brother. Vote has made a thorough analysis of six cases of pathological liars, ranging from the very stupid to the intelligent. One, a girl who had done poorly in school, was unable to hold a place and became a thief. Her mother was epileptic. Examination showed intelligence not equal to that of eight years, with moral inferiority on account of this weakness. Two, a feeble-minded girl of vacillating weak judgment father insane. Her lies were marked by their fantastic nature. Three, lively, fanciful, unstable, hysterical girl, poor record at school. Four, hysterical liar with peculiarities united with splendid mental ability. Five, unusually intelligent 15-year-old, illegitimate child, normal mother who later had five sound children, father drunkard. Her lies were neither of suggested nor dreamy type. They were skillfully dramatized means to an end in her fight for social position. In the psychiatric examination, she was found mentally normal. 6. Girl thoroughly intelligent, good at figures and puzzles, with no signs of degeneracy. Vote characterized the pathological lie as active, more elaborately constructed, more inclusive, and leaving the ground of reality more readily than ordinary lies. Such lies he does not always find egocentric. To the pathological liar his own creation is reality, so he walks securely, is open and amiable. All these cases are gifted with lively imaginations and inclined to autosuggestion. Vote calls the pathological lie a wish psychosis. This statement opens the way to an interesting and valuable interpretation of the psychological significance of this phenomenon of the mental life. He finds many more girls than boys among his cases. Boys lie from need of defense and protection, girls more from autosuggestion. 
this type of lie is of greater interest to social than to clinical psychology he emphasizes the point that very refined and complicated lies appear in healthy young people in the stress of difficult situations obstinate and stubborn lying of itself is no disease among children examination must reveal that the lie has a morbid cause the resemblance of pathological lying to poetic creation was first suggested by delbruck in a reference to keller's der grune heinrich a german novel in which the lies of a boy of seven years lies of a creative type of the nature of retroactive hallucinations are described henriksen discusses at length the resemblance of pseudologia fantastica to poetic creation in goethe grillparzer hoffman and others in an inaugural dissertation anna stemmermann presents exhaustively a series of cases these cases were studied over a long period catamnestically commenting upon one case she says it is worthy of note in this history that the patient in a hypnoidal condition with headache and flushed face crochets in a senseless way and thinks she is weaving a wreath for her mother's grave her mother being still alive we often meet with actions like this characteristic is the report of spontaneous fearful headache without the patient's putting this in relation to her peculiar behavior we lay more stress upon this condition than has been done previously in the literature we believe that this symptom is wanting in no classic case of pseudologia fantastica often in this condition of narrowed consciousness the daydreams are spun and have such a power of convincing that they later make the basis of pathological lies and swindling in this hypnoidal state a strongly heightened suggestibility exists and trivial external causes give daydreams their direction the general trend of fancy reveals naturally the inclinations and ideals of the affected individual stemmermann also maintained that the pathological lie is a wish psychosis even outside the hypnoidal state these cases are more suggestible than the general run of people of stemmermann's own cases ten in number only four at most were normally endowed the remainder were either stupid or slightly imbecile this agrees with the experience of previous writers study of her cases show that there was a report of previous mendacity four had been liars from childhood she found in them the combination of the general habit of lying underneath the more accentuated form of pseudologia fantastica one case had perverted sex feeling one was a prostitute at sixteen years in her dissertation some points for the differentiation of the pathological lie have been added to those offered by delbruck risch coppen and vogt the pathological liar lies not according to a plan but the impulse seizes him suddenly this propensity grows stronger under strict supervision it comes only to an abortive attack similar to what happens in cases of dipsomania or of tendency to rove in which the repressed outbreak expresses itself in tormenting psychical and physical unrest 
while the normal liar and swindler is forced to be on his guard lest he divulge something of the actual state of affairs and is therefore either taciturn or presents an evil and watchful appearance or if a novice at his trade is hesitating in his replies the pathological liar has a cheerful open free enthusiastic charming appearance because he believes in his stories and wishes their reality the inconsequential way in which such persons go to work is to be explained by the fact that consciousness of the real situation is partly clouded in their minds in any special act it is impossible to say whether the consciousness of the lie fancy or delusion preponderates inability to remember delinquencies demerman regards also as added proof of pathological lying she speaks of another class of prattlers chattering people that might be confounded with pathological liars from the stories they tell in full detail but they have no system which they develop often change their subject and do not paint in a lifelike way because they do not believe their own stories or live in them in a self-centered manner of the seventeen cases stemmerman studied from the literature delbruck henriksen jorger Breedlich, cole henneberg wellenberg ten were periodic of her own ten cases six were periodic sex abnormalities were present in five out of the seventeen in the literature among possible causes of pathological lying she places any factor which narrows consciousness and increases suggestion and weakness such as pregnancy overexertion chronic alcoholism monotonous living long close work head injuries concerning prognosis she finds little detailed in the literature the general opinion is that such cases arising from a background of degeneracy are incurable one of her cases was free from attacks for two periods of three years each and had been blameless in an honorable position as editor for seven years at the time of the publication of her monograph she suggests that the profession he has chosen may be particularly suited to the talents of the pathological liar she also ventures to state that where pathological lying is merely an accompaniment of puberty it may disappear the fact that so many of the cases cited by stemmerman were clearly abnormal and found places in insane asylums makes much citation of them by us in turn hardly worth while however a short summary of a couple of her more normal cases will show the problems and conditions as she found them one annie j nineteen years old father a tailor had been employed in several places as a servant aside from the fact that it was stated she always had an inclination to lie nothing more was known about her early life she complained of headaches and fainting attacks and mourned over the death of her fiance she said he had gone to berlin to learn tailoring and had died there of inflammation of the lungs he left her six hundred and fifty marks which her mother got hold of on investigation it was found that this man was still alive and never had been engaged to her she then accused her mother of taking fifty marks from her and said that a man purporting to be her real father came from another town and told her she had been brought up by foster parents through the quarreling which arose from these various stories annie was taken before the police physician and pronounced mentally unsound 
then she told of another engagement with the brother of her departed fiance who had discovered her real mother the latter was going to leave her thirty thousand marks he had formed a plot with the foster mother to put annie out of the way and to divide the money he followed her on the street and threw a drugged cloth over her head she fainted and was carried home she said she brought action for attempt to murder whether this fiance and the rich mother were real persons is not known later in the same year annie being again at large a new father de graf von waldau appeared and bought her beautiful clothes costing one hundred marks he wanted to take her away but quickly disappeared and was not seen again when annie told this story she was employed by a woman who attempted to get traces of the count but failed later this employer missed a sum of money equivalent to that spent for the clothes annie's responsibility by this time was still more questioned and she was sent to an insane asylum there she was found normally oriented orderly industrious but suffered from periodical headache when questioned in the asylum concerning her tales she hesitated and would say now i believe them and now i don't it is remarkable in this case that her different employers believed all her fabrications and took the girl's part against the supposed offenders for a year she engaged in a sort of orgy of pathological lying and then this phase of her career stopped after a few months in the asylum she returned home and later married the last report from her mother was that she was nervous and easily excited but showed no further signs of insanity two this was a boy johann p who was studied mentally first when he was sixteen years old a thoroughly good history was forthcoming he was brought for examination on account of his extreme changeableness his failure in several occupations his tendencies to swindling and his extreme lying as a young child his mother had to correct him for prevarications soon after he was nine when both his parents were already dead he forged a school certificate and was felt to be a bad influence in the home of his guardian about that time he also stole money from pockets on a number of occasions in school he was regarded as an undesirable pupil on account of his underhanded behavior and one teacher who had observed him for long wrote that he showed marked inclination towards lying at the time he was fifteen he was somewhat retarded in school life but was told he had to decide upon an occupation after a stormy period he announced he would become a gardener after doing well for a month or so at his first place he began to tell compromising stories about the wife of his employer he gave himself out to be the son of a general who was going to inherit a large sum of money on the strength of this he managed to get hold of expensive articles he desired a short time afterward he wrote to his guardian he was fitted for higher pursuits than that of gardening soon afterward he ran away to a large town he now wrote that the word freedom sounded like the sweetest music in his ears he acknowledged that he had started a career of criminality but decided to do better at this time he attempted to make his way by offering his compositions at a newspaper office where they were declined either because his productions were immature or his authorship was doubted 
one editor loaned him some money but he got much more by representing himself to be a collaborator of this editor he soon failed to make his way and attempted other things including entrance into the merchant marine he finally turned up again at his guardian's house and when his box was opened it was found to contain a very curious lot of material such as money accounts business cards letterheads catalogues it was at this time that he was placed for observation in an asylum and it was soon found that his alleged compositions were plagiarized he claimed to suffer from headaches outside of that he was in fine physical condition he frequently wrote sketches in proof of his ability a general statement was finally made that he showed slight traces of hysteria was a sufferer from headaches and showed periodic tendencies to wandering and lying no special defect in the ethical discriminations was present he had good insight into his own tendencies he was finally released to his guardian and stemmerman offered the prognosis that johann might well develop into a typical pathological swindler he came of a family of five brothers and sisters one of whom was incarcerated for a year on account of stealing one sister was noted for her tendency to prevarication several of them were remarkably unstable at least early in life all of them are said to have learned very unwillingly in school one brother of the father was exceedingly nervous Jorger presents a case of a boy of poor parents who was from childhood possessed of the idea of being a teacher. He was always a solitary child, endowed with great religious fervor. In spite of poverty, he obtained an education, studied the classics, and did excellent work. He developed early religious eccentricities, became unsound on money matters, boasted of his father's millions spent freely as a benefactor bought expensive books then developed an outspoken tendency to swindling finally he was adjudged insane and committed to an asylum commenting on this case jorger points out the marks of abnormality from childhood such as solitariness and religious intensity he was above normal in intellectual ability but lacking in moral development he did not love parents, brothers, sisters, or teachers. He was very egotistical. Jorger defines this as a case of constitutional psychosis. When older, Pseudologia Fantastica controlled him. It was like hypnotic influence. His dreams of wealth were like paranoia. His hypnotic condition grew to such an extent that there was an interruption of consciousness with following amnesia. Henneberg cites another case of a highly educated young man who told wonderful stories in childhood and later obtained money under false pretenses with elaborate deception. From an eccentric grandmother and a mother who was very excitable and suffered from hysteria, he inherited a nervous system which was not calculated to bear the strain which his own overzealous efforts in pursuing his studies and his spiritual exaltation put upon him hence the mental and moral breakdown this is a very interesting case because it does not fit into the usual group of pathological liars went enlarged the field in which we may look for such cases he finds pseudologia fantastica a symptom not only of hysteria alcoholism paranoia but also of sex repression and neurasthenia 
he takes a more philosophical view of the subject than previous authors he understands by pseudologia fantastica not merely the bare habit of telling fantastic lies and what they bring forth but rather the yielding up of consciousness of reality in the presence of the morbidly fantastic wish in its widest consequences since the wish in order to exist is not permitted to lose entirely the conscious presentation of what it hopes for so memory and recognition of reality emerge disconnected in consciousness and a condition described as double consciousness arises in this state of mind two forms of life run side by side the actual and the desired finally the latter becomes preponderant and decisive such a psychic make-up must lead unconditionally and necessarily to swindling and law-breaking a degenerative alteration furnishes the basis from which a wish or wish complex arises increasing in force until it becomes autosuggestion hence it is pathological then follow the practical consequences and we have developed on the one side pathological lying and on the other swindling that is criminality purely symptomatically pseudologia fantastica is characterized by the groundlessness of the fabrications the heightened suggestibility of the patient and in its wake arises double consciousness and inadequate powers of reproduction of reality went gives at length the history of a precocious boy the son of an official of medical rank who had lived always with older people he lied from early childhood he was a chronic sufferer from severe headaches between the ages of fifteen and seventeen this boy showed evidences of literary talent but was poor in mathematics from a tender age he had an overmastering desire to become great he said he wished to become a jurist because only jurists get the high offices he entered a south german university rented a fine apartment stated he was accustomed to a schloss his father was a high state official he later called himself graf friedrich gersdorf of blankenhain the young man's deceits grew rapidly he obtained much money falsely traveled first class with the body servants he passed to other universities was always quiet and industrious after many adventures he fell into the hands of the law and was adjudged insane most interesting was the fact that he discussed intelligently his career Quote, my capacity for considering my thoughts as something really carried out in life is unfortunately too great to permit my having full conception of the boundary between appearance and reality End quote. The family history of the above case included swindling hysteria and epilepsy. His fabricating tendency first reached its height at 14 years, thus showing the influence of puberty. Wendt regarded the etiological factors as family degeneracy, a wish complex which in activity amounted to autosuggestion, double consciousness, and a periodical preponderance of the wished-for personality bressler in proposing two reforms in the german strafgesetzbuch undertook a discussion of pathological accusations as material using cases reported by several authors he attempted a classification as follows 
one deliberately false accusations based upon the pathological disposition or impulse to lie the content of the accusation being fabricated two false accusation upon a basis of pathologically disturbed perceptions or reasoning content of the accusation is here illusion hallucination or delusion three accusations correct in content but pathologically motivated the first group nearly always is the action of hystericals and many are centered on sex affairs Bressler's cited cases of this class seem merely to impress the idea of revenge or protection from deserved punishment a very complicated case was that of a girl who had been rejected in marriage after the discovery by her lover that she had attacks of major hysteria she entered into a conspiracy with her mother to destroy him she first maliciously cut grapevines and accused him and his brother of doing it then she slandered his whole family a year later suddenly appearing wounded she accused his uncle of trying to kill her and obtained a verdict against him then she attempted the same with another uncle who however maintained an alibi after this her role changed for her mother summoned people to see her daughter lying with a wreath around her head brought by an angel with a scroll on which was inscribed corona martyri the church now took her part and she toured the country as a sort of saint later she returned to her former tactics she set fire to a house cut off a cow's udder and accused her former lover of these deeds now for the first time it went badly with her she was finally imprisoned for life on account of attempts to poison people in bressler's second group he places the false accusations of alcoholics paranoiacs querulants whom he calls a subclass of paranoiacs and sufferers from head injuries besides these he here classes the false accusations of children the third class is so rare that it receives almost no discussion longard reports an interesting case of a chronic liar and swindler a man who on account of the peculiarities of his swindling was placed under custody for study upon detention he went into convulsions and later seemed entirely distracted he was then twenty-four years old investigation of his case showed that his abnormalities dated from early life and were probably due to the fact that in childhood he had a bad fall from a height when he was twenty-three he had served six months on account of swindling at that time he had been going about in the rhine country dressed as a monk begging things of little worth such as crucifixes candles medals etc his pious behavior and orderliness gave him a good reception he sometimes took money or begged it in order to read masses for poor souls in one village he said he had come to reconnoiter for a site to build a hospital some cloister brothers in one place took him for a swindler and decided he was overwrought religiously and that he really thought he was what he wished to become he was studied at length in prison where he had one attack of maniacal behavior and tried to hang himself the physician there thought him a simulator he was excused from his military service because of stomach trouble at that time mental abnormalities were not noticed after this he again acted the part of a monk 
wandering through france and germany living in monasteries and being helped along by different organizations protestant as well as catholic he was arrested in cologne when discovered to be a fraud he lay four days in jail apparently unconscious and then appeared stupefied and staggered about when questioned he responded quote, i am born again end quote. he spoke mostly in biblical terms and was fluent with pious speeches he was found quite sound physically he ate a great deal and was known to take bread away from other prisoners at night he was sentenced for fifteen months for swindling he himself related that in youth he had seen many monks and had become possessed of the idea of being one he was a sex pervert the author considered this not a pure case of simulation the patient was an abnormal being none of his keepers thought him normal his entire appearance his excited way of speaking his gestures and play of features were all striking to a high degree his method of going about begging was unreasonable he gained so little by it his tendency to untruthfulness stood out everywhere he imitated the pious as he chattered without aim the man had lived himself into the role of a cloister brother so completely that he was not clearly conscious of the deceit the author thinks the case presents some paranoiac features with a pathological tendency towards lying thus this pathological liar presents the phenomenon of a mixture of lies and delusions from the zurich clinic of forel several cases of pathological swindling have been reported at length it must be confessed that the success of much of the misrepresentation cited in these case histories seems to be as largely due to the naivete of the country folk as to the efforts of the swindlers themselves two of the cases were clearly insane and were detained for long periods in asylums after their study in the clinic but even so it is to be noted that one of these when absenting himself from institutional care succeeded in going on with his swindling operations the third case was regarded as that of an aberrational individual with special tendencies towards lying and swindling but the opinion rendered did not end in the man being held as insane he was simply regarded as a delinquent and after serving his sentence he went his old way these cases are interesting to one who would learn the extent to which swindling among a simple-minded population can be carried on from french sources we have not been able to collect such a wealth of material as we found in german literature one study by beltrude and mercier compares favorably in elaborate working out of details with the work of german authors a corsican boy from childhood moody fond of adventure inclined to deception had attempted suicide several times before he was twenty years old he was married at that time and went to france where he was employed in several towns his life following this included an immense amount of lying and swindling he had a mania for buying costly antique furniture and jewelry which he obtained on credit he frequently disappeared from localities where he was wanted on criminal charges and changed his name he wandered through italy tunis and south america 
Returning to France, he was taken into custody and mental troubles were noted. He showed delirium of persecution and was removed to a hospital for the insane. Experts studied him for a year before they could decide whether he was insane or merely simulating insanity. Finally, they thought he was not simulating. A few months later, he escaped, went to Belgium, Italy, Corsica. Turning up at a town in France under an assumed name, he was arrested again and elaborately examined. At this time, he had frequent attacks of unconsciousness and frothing at the mouth. At times, he was melancholy. Summarizing the case, the authors say that the psychic peculiarities of the patient were congenital and included habitual instability of character with defective development of the ethical sentiments and tendency to deceit and swindling. Epilepsy here is, of course, the central cause of mental and moral deterioration. From a pedagogical point of view, Ruma tells of the marvelous stories of a five-year-old boy in the Froebel School in Chalera. His stories were generally suggested by something told by the teacher or other pupils. He referred their anecdotes to himself or other members of his family and greatly enlarged upon them. He also made elaborate childish drawings and gave long accounts of what they meant. Going into the question of heredity, Ruma found this boy's mother very nervous. The father was a good man. She had worked steadily at the machine before his birth. Two of their children died with convulsions. Of the two living, one was well-behaved but weakly. Ruma's case had stigmata of degeneracy in ears, palate, and jaw. Tested by the Binet system, he did three out of five of the tests for five years satisfactorily. He was easily fatigued, refused at times to respond, said he had been forbidden to reply, said he would be whipped if he did. In school, he was always poor at manual work, wanted to be moving about, to go out of classes on errands, was always calling notice to himself in a good or bad way. He paid very little attention to his lessons, played alone or with younger children, leading them often into mischief. It was found that he got much of his material for stories from his older brother who told him of robbers and accidents. From his good father he got the form of his tales, because the father was wont to tell him stories with a moral. In summary, Rumus stated that this child possessed senses acute beyond the average, and was of very unstable temperament, refusing regular work, not submitting to rules, rebelling at abstractions. There were evidences of degeneracy on the mother's side. Remedies in education for such children are suppress food for imagination, such as came from the stories of father and brother, direct perceptions to accurate work, systematize education of attention, exercise the senses, use manual work such as modeling and gardening, give lessons in observation in the classroom and on promenades. Mounier tells of three girls in a well-known Parisian school who indulged in wonderful tales. The first, in the intermediate grade, told stories of the illness of her father to account for her not having her lessons. The second, eleven years old, said that her mother was dying. 
She came bringing this news to the teachers at two different periods of her school life. She was a calm, thoughtful, analytical child with no reason for lying. Family history negative. The third, 13 years old, told of an imaginary uncle who was going to collect funds for needy children. She kept up the deceit for two months. She was an anemic, nervous, hysterical child with a nervous mother. Mounier calls these cases of systematized deliriums. The development of such delirium annihilates, so to speak, the entire personality of the subject, and his entire mental life is invaded by abnormal extra and introspection. The delirium commands and systematizes all acquired impressions. There is a veritable splitting of the personality in which the new ego is developed at the expense of the normal ego that now only appears at intervals. End of chapter 2 Read by Mary Schneider